listening to the Forefront Church podcast in New York City. Uh, miracles are pretty amazing. Miracles are amazing, amazing things. Uh, there was 37 of them that were talked about in Scripture. 37 miracles. There probably were more. Most likely, there were more. There were uh, people being healed. There was a child that was raised from the dead. There were 5,000 people fed from five loaves and two fishes. There was my uh, second favorite miracle. That is Jesus casting demons out of people and putting them into pigs and the pigs going over the cliff. You guys know about that one? Good times. And then there's my favorite one. My favorite one is this one, Jesus turning water into wine. I like it for a number of reasons. It is the first miracle in um, Jesus' ministry. It has a ton. There's a ton there. I love talking about it. Um, people have heard me talking about, about it way too often, and too bad I'm talking about it more. Um, it's incredible. Miracles are incredible. Miracles uh, at the time when Jesus performed them were blessings. People had not heard the voice of God, and these miracles allowed people to hear the voice of God again. Miracles at this time, they literally changed the lives of thousands of people. Thousands of lives were changed because of these miracles. These miracles started movements. They started movements that have lasted till right now, till right here where we are this Sunday. Miracles have started movements that allow us to be at church today. Miracles are amazing, and I absolutely believe that miracles limit us. They limit the way we hear the voice of God. I believe that they limit us. Why do they limit us? Why? Um, I believe in miracles. I believe in the miracles of Scripture. I think many of us here believe in the miracles of Scripture. And uh, we look at the miracles and we go, miracles happen and this is amazing. And Jesus performed miracles and miracles still happen today. And we think this way and it's a good way to think. And then we have to think about what's not happening. We have to kind of go down this road where we say, well, Jesus healed a girl and brought her back to life, but now I need to think about the millions of children who were prayed for and whose parents were on their knees begging that their child be healed, and that child was not healed, and they died here in Brooklyn, right? And I think about miracles, and I think about Jesus feeding the 5,000, and then I think about right here, right now, today, while we're in church, there are people dying that are starving because they don't have enough to eat right here in Brooklyn. And so, yeah, I believe in miracles, and miracles are great, but why isn't God saving everybody? Why are we having to deal with people dying? Why do we have to deal with suffering? And now, the miracles kind of lost its power for me. Now I've gone down a different rabbit hole. That's the way some of us think. I think there's others of us that... Um, that are skeptical. Any people skeptical here? Skeptical of miracles? I see way more head nods for skepticism. I get it. We are skeptical of miracles. There, there has got to be a reason behind these miracles. And you know what? We are so conditioned. We are so conditioned to need reason, to need rationale, to need logic, that of course, if we don't see it, if we can't find it, we are quick to dismiss it. We are, and that's okay too, okay? It's okay to think rationally. It's okay to think logically. It's okay to want evidence. It's okay to want that stuff. That is good. But do you understand that we have spent the first 15 years of our lives in school, and for those first 15 years, what we've been taught to do is we've been taught to gather information, and we've been taught to think about that information in logical ways and in rational ways. And then we've been given strategies to find that information. And those strategies help us to think rationally and logically. And so no wonder we come to a scripture like this where Jesus turns water into wine and we go, well, where, where's the evidence? 
Where's the information? We value information. Our lives, we value people who can give us information accurately and quickly. I mean, that's why we like Twitter and like having phones in our pocket and all the rest. That, that we value that information. And we're going, this information doesn't make sense. This information throws me off. I don't necessarily believe this. I doubt that this can happen. About 11 years ago, uh, my wife and I were trying to get married. There's a little bit of opposition to us getting married. And I said to a mentor, I was talking to a mentor, and a mentor said, why don't you pray about it? And I said, why would I pray about something like that? God doesn't answer prayer. That's ridiculous. And then I said, God won't answer prayer of this type anyway. And then I said, you know, and if God's not answering my prayer, maybe God doesn't really care about me. And if God doesn't really care about me, then maybe God doesn't really care about any of us at all. Maybe God just like created the world and set it in motion and that was that. And if that's the case, well, then maybe there's a God that doesn't even, maybe God doesn't even exist. I doubt that God even exists right now. And then my mentor just laughed at me. And I didn't understand why until right now. No, I'm kidding. I still don't understand why. But anyway, he laughed at me. And, um, and it was troubling, right? I'm troubled. And, and listen, I have to ask you guys. Have you been in a place, maybe you're at this place right now today, where you doubt that there's a God at work in your life? Where you doubt that there's a God that exists? Where you doubt, like, my life feels so impossible right now that I can't believe there's a God who has any control over what's going on in my life. And my life feels so crazy right now that I, I can't believe that there is a God that has anything to do with me. And, and I see Jesus turning water into wine, and I can't believe in that. I, I don't have the correct information. Or if Jesus turned water into wine for that wedding, well, at my wedding, we ran out of bush light. Now I don't know what to do, and that didn't happen for me. So what am I supposed to do with this, right? What am I supposed to do with it? Oh, I think that God is at work. I think we hear the voice of God in the midst of uncertainty. I think we hear the voice of God in doubt. I think if we are doubting, our doubt is necessary for us to hear the voice of God. It's absolutely necessary because Scripture tells us about a bunch of miracles, but what Scripture also tells us 250 times is that if we're going to do this Christ-following thing, we have to have faith. And what is faith? The epitome of uncertainty. It's being uncertain. That's what it is. It's being uncertain in a God and saying that that God might have some say in my life anyway. Uncertain in who Jesus is, but that Jesus having some say in my life anyway. This is what the Christ-following world and life is all about. It's about uncertainty. We hear God's voice in the midst of uncertainty. So now, if that's the case, we have to ask ourselves a different question. We have to say, did this miracle happen? Did this miracle not happen? We have to maybe look at it a third way. If God's working in other ways, then we say, what happens when we can imagine this miracle happening? What happens when we can imagine this miracle happening? How do we hear the voice of God when we imagine this miracle happening? That doesn't come from me. That's from a pastor and writer named Brian McLaren. What happens when we can imagine this miracle happening? Imagining. Imagining is a, that's a scary word for some of us. I think for some of us, we, we think of imagination, we think of a lost reality or a false sense or something to that effect. You guys remember when you had imaginations? You remember that? People are like, yeah, it's all like, oh, we're all wistful right now. Yeah. My sisters used to play a game called Space Ninjas Who Are Waitresses. I thought, <laughs> I thought that was a cool game. Uh, my kids, my kids play this game. Uh, they call it baby tush tush. That's what they call it. 
And uh, one of the kids is named Gertrude, and my other child is Jenna Ruta. And they play this for hours, and I have no idea how this game goes. But they play it for hours. I miss that. You guys miss that? Imagination. You guys miss imagination? You guys miss it? My kids were like, Daddy, tell me a story. I was like, there was once two little girls named Asha and Lila. They were like, those are our names. And I was like, I can't think of anything. I don't have an imagination. That's what happens. We lose our imagination. Where's your, where did yours go? Where's your imagination? Where'd it go? Sitting on your desk somewhere? Is it locked up in a box? You were like, I was going to take it out earlier, but I had too much work to do. Where's your imagination? It's on Instagram where they imagine for you in different shades and colors, right? Where's your imagination? Right now, your focus is so singular. You have such a singular focus and just such a, so you have one identity that anything else happening, working outside that realm of that one thing is, just seems impossible to you. Imagination is gone. What happens when we can imagine miracles happening? What happens when we could say God isn't working in the black and in the white, God is working in the middle and the tension and the uncertainty and the impossibilities? What happens when we can imagine that? We need to reclaim our imaginations. You guys down? You guys want to reclaim imagination today? Let's do it. Let's do it. First, we've got to reclaim Jesus. I want to reclaim Jesus in this story. Okay? Let's reclaim our imagination about who Jesus is. Most of us think Jesus is this guy. Where is he? That guy. <laughs> True or false? I'm glad somebody said false. That's good. How about, do people think of him the other way? Like, like that? There he is. The metaphor is that we're the lamb. Anyway, so this is the way we think about Jesus. This is how we do most of the time. So now we have to think about this. We have to reclaim or we have to imagine this Jesus at a wedding, okay? Um, This Jesus right here at a wedding uh, goes up and orders a Shirley Temple and sits against the wall and pokes at it. Uh, while the wedding's going on, while the reception's going on. And then people are like, come on, Jesus, dance. And they start to pull his hand, and Jesus is like, no, no, seriously, no, seriously, stop. And then, like, has to come back and poke at his Shirley Temple some more. That's this Jesus, right? That's not who Jesus was. That is not, we have to reimagine this Jesus. We have to reclaim this Jesus. History tells us that this Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard. So he had to be having some fun, right? Okay, so let's reclaim Jesus, that imagination first. So we can get rid of that Jesus right now. Um, and, and, and we have to know this. This Jesus was at this wedding in Cana, okay? And, and he was the center of the party. He was doing the cha-cha. He was doing all the good stuff. The, the, if it was a country thing, the boot scoop boogie. And, uh, he, I mean, he was having a great time. He was, uh, you know, the little girl came up to him and was like, hey, will you dance with me? And he was like, yeah. You know, so we danced with a little girl, and everybody took the pictures, uh, you know when everybody claps and is in a circle? You know that? Jesus was in the circle. He was in the middle. Can we imagine this? Can we imagine somebody who's lively, who's charismatic, somebody who people would follow? Can you imagine this Jesus? You got it? This Jesus is there. He's, he's, he's in the midst of people. He's in the midst of the party. And uh, now he's sitting out on the back deck with his disciples and they're laughing and they're having drinks and they're talking about the time that Jesus was run out of his hometown synagogue and they're all laughing about the irony of all of it. And Jesus' mom comes up and she says, Jesus, we're out of wine. We're out of wine. Why would this matter? Why does it matter? Because now we have to imagine the wedding that Jesus was at. Um, It wasn't chips and salsa in the church basement. It wasn't. Uh, And if your wedding was that, that's okay. 
that's all right, but this was a little different. Okay, this wedding was um, seven days long. Most Jewish weddings at the time were seven days long. People from all over came to this wedding. Uh, and so you had like just an amazing party that lasted all week. The entire town shut down for this thing. Can we imagine this? Entire town shuts down for this party. And everybody is there, and people travel for miles to get there. You've been to this wedding before. Think about, um, you know, think about the wedding where everybody flies in, everybody's hanging out. There's party buses that are taking you to the, the places. You know what I'm talking about? Everybody's been to one of those, and, and, and you're with your best friends, and you're like, this is the best time ever. And then for the next two years, all you do is talk about what happened at that wedding, right? You've been to that. This is the wedding Jesus is at times seven, okay? He's at that wedding. Can we imagine that wedding? Can we imagine being at that wedding, and it's day three, and somebody says, we don't have any more wine. Can you imagine that wedding? So Mary goes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, we're out of wine What does Jesus say? He says, woman, why do you involve me? My time has not come yet. Now, I'm just going to throw it out there. There's a lot of commentary on this and a lot of theological debate, but first off, if I ever call my wife or my mom woman (laughs) that way, I'd be emailing you guys asking for a place to stay. (laughs) But he does it. And there's a lot of debate as to why he does it. There's a lot of, you know, theological implications as to why. Uh, Personally, I think he's having a really great time. I think he's in that zone, that moment, and you don't want to be bothered in that zone. You guys have been in that zone before. You have. You have just made an incredible sandwich. And you put some chips on the side. And nobody's at home. It's just you. And you sit down. And you turn on Netflix you get ready to eat the sandwich, and then you get a phone call, and you look, and you're like, I got to take this call, and it's not going to be good. That's where Jesus is. That's, that's the ruining of the zone. Do we understand the ruining of the zone? That's where it's happening. Where's my parents? Thank you, parents. You sit down. Don knows this. He's a brand new parent. You sit down, and you think your day's over, and then your spouse comes, and they go, I've changed the last three dirty diapers, and you got this one. And you're like, no. That's what it's like. That's what Jesus is going through right now. You go on vacation and you're sitting on the back porch and and you're having the best time ever and one of your friends comes out of the vacation house and goes, hey, somebody's got to do the dishes and you know that you haven't done the dishes yet and you got to do them now. That's what's happening. This is what's happening with Jesus. Can we imagine this? Can we feel this? There are lots of theological debates and commentaries and everything else. I just think Jesus was having a really good time. And maybe can it be just that? Everybody's like, no, it's got to be theological. (laughs) So Mary, though, is not even phased. She is not even phased. She says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So she doesn't answer Jesus. She just, Jesus goes, woman, why do you involve me? And she goes, do whatever he tells you. (laughs) And walks away. She drops the mic and walks away. Now, why? Why does she do that? And I think this is a really, really important part of the story, actually. This is actually a really important thing. Mary has doubted God's existence. Mary has absolutely believed that there has been no God. She's believed that. I am really confident saying that. 
She uh, was with her family and, 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 you know, they read the prophets and the Torah and she read the prophets and the Torah for information and she read and she was like, where's this Messiah that's not here? And she was under Roman oppression and, and her family members were being killed and enslaved and all the rest and, and she was like, God, where are you? And that God was silent and she, I, I put money on it, did not believe that there was a God who existed and all of a sudden an angel shows up. An angel shows up, and the angel goes, all right, you're going to have a baby, and that baby's going to be the savior of the world. And she still doesn't believe. She still doubts. God, you, you don't work this way. It either happens or it doesn't happen, and it hasn't been happening for a long time. And he goes, oh, the Holy Spirit's coming. You get ready. And sure enough, the Holy Spirit comes. And now, in the midst of the uncertainty and in the midst of the attention there is a baby in Mary's belly, and it is the savior of the world. And so Mary can imagine what happens when miracles happen. And she says, do whatever he tells you. She's been there before. So she operates with that confidence. And Jesus says, all right, you have been there before. Because this is not a story about did this happen, did this not happen. This is a story about what happens in the middle and the tension and the uncertainty. What happens when you can imagine miracles happening so Jesus gets six stone jars, or has servants get six stone jars. These jars are incredibly important. Um, what would happen is when you were going into a synagogue or a religious place, like a wedding, uh, before you entered the wedding, you would have to wash yourself. You would wash up in these big jars. Uh, they're about this high. You stick your hands in, and you lived in the desert. So one of the reasons you would do this is because you were dirty, okay? The second reason you would do this is because you were unclean according to God. According to God, you were unclean, and before you entered into a religious area, like a wedding, you had to wash yourself so you could become clean before God. So you would go in, and you would wash yourself, and now you were clean before God. You can come into this religious area. Everything was good. If you were blind, if you were, had leprosy, if you uh, were sick, you could not even put your hands in that jar. In fact, you had to stand around that jar, and you had to yell out, I'm unclean. I'm unclean. Can you imagine sitting outside of a wedding and, and, and being blind or having leprosy or something and saying, I'm unclean, as all these other people dip their hands in and go into the wedding. You're not allowed to go into. Those are the jars that Jesus says, hey, go get for me. Those jars. Six of them. And Jesus asks the servants to fill them up. They fill them up. And then they're overflowing with wine. They are overflowing with wine. <laughs> this is absurd. This is an absurd story. I'm telling you, and I'm like, this is crazy, right? Can we, can we take a minute and think about the absurdity of this? Like, basically what happened, literally, not basically, literally what happened is that Jesus took a baptismal and he made it into a keg, okay? That's literally what happened. Seriously, can we imagine right now, like the baptismal that we sometimes use up here, all of a sudden, like, some guy comes in, he's like, I'm, I'm the Messiah, and, you know, it's got water in it, but, you know, boom, now it's got, like, delirium tremens, like, the best beer ever, <laughs> right? Like, imagine that. What would we think? What would we think? Some of us would be like, yes. Others of us would be like, this is an immature Messiah, I'll tell you that much. We'd all have some different thoughts to this, but this is what happened. This is absurd. And what we need to understand, and this is the most, uh, I said a bunch of important parts. It's an important story. This is what John says to finish up the story. John says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
Now, this is important language. This is really deliberate language. This is a place where I'm going to rest on the commentary. Really deliberate language that's used, the signs. Notice John doesn't say, and this was a fact, this was proof that this happened this way, and now we can all believe. Or this was a great parable that kind of shows who Jesus is, and now we can believe in Jesus, and this is the way he is. No, signs. What does signs mean? It means the same thing then that it means now, which signs, when you literally translate, means a pointing to. This story points us to God's glory. This is a story that is pointing us to God's glory. Signs towards God's glory. So it's not a matter of God working in whether it did it happen, didn't it happen, is not the point. The point is God is working in the tension. God is working in the uncertainty. God is working in the absurdity of this story to change lives and to bring glory. That's what we're focusing on. So how do we look at this differently? How do we look at it? Well, instead of going, well, it could have happened, or there's no scientific basis for this happening, what we can say is what's the deal with, you know, wine running out? Maybe we're, are we empty? Is there a way we're prematurely empty? What's God trying to tell us by being prematurely empty, running on empty? What's God trying to say? Why these jars? Why these, why these jars that are, are part of ritual worship? Why those jars? What's Jesus trying to say when he, he uses those jars? What does it mean for us? What about saving the best wine for last? What does that have to do with us? What is God trying to tell us? What kind of glory is being revealed when God says he saves the best for last? Do we see the shift? Do we see the way we change the thinking, the questioning, when we can imagine what happens when miracles take place? And we reclaim our imaginations. The truth is we're never going to get the proof we want. We're never going to have the certainty we want. This thing's all about uncertainty so we can start saying, you know, my doubt, the struggle that I have over this kind of stuff, you know, there's a God that's working in between it, uh, begging me to ask different questions, begging me to change my life in different ways, begging me to look at a third way that this whole thing might actually work. Can we start doing it? Even the Apostle Paul agrees. Apostle Paul wrote a giant chunk of the New Testament. And in 1 Corinthians, he says this. He says, For since, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased, though, through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The foolishness. This thing is foolish. This thing is absurd. This thing begs us to go beyond our right or wrong or black or white. It begs us to go beyond our information, and it asks us to take part in a third way. What can we imagine when we imagine miracles happening? How will God speak when we can imagine miracles happening? This author says it this way, and I love it. He says there's a ton of foolishness and downright silliness in a life framed by faith in a God whose existence you'll never be able to prove. But as countless people have discovered, there's a lot of goodness to be had in that foolishness. There's a lot of goodness to be had in that foolishness. What happens when we can imagine miracles happening? How does life change? How does it look different? I, um, I'll start. Uh, I've mentioned this before. I have a relationship in my family that just is broken, and it's ruined me for the past two years. It just, I, my life has been different in the past two years because it's happened. It's a family relationship. And so at the beginning when I would think about this stuff, I would think this is it. This is over. It can never be fixed. It will never work again. Um, and a lot of times I still feel that way. God has nothing in this. God can't fix this or help this or do anything, and a lot of times I still feel that way, but what happens? What happens when I imagine God performing a miracle in this relationship? What happens? 
all of a sudden I see, well, maybe God's fixing things little by little. Maybe God's working on me. Maybe there's some blind spots that I have that I need to figure out. Maybe I've been holding on to something for too long. Maybe there's a God who, who's, who's working in a miracle and it's just not in a time that I can even think or understand. Maybe this is just painful and there's something that God's speaking through in that. What happens? What third way do we look at things? Can miracles happen in them? How about you? I just went. I went first. I'm not going to make you say yours out loud. But write it down. Seriously. You got a pen? You got your, your, uh, your iPad or your iPhone notes? There's something right now that feels impossible to you. There's something right now that feels like you can't fix it. That God is not in this. That there is doubt. And maybe it's God himself or herself or whatever self. Maybe it's God and you're saying that this God does not exist. Maybe that's it. Write it down. Seriously. Go ahead. Do it. I'll give you a minute. Write it down. What's this thing that you don't believe? And <laughs> everybody's phones are going off. And I want you to look at it. And I want you to say, what happens when I believe God can work miracles in this situation? What happens when I can say, it's not about you know black or white, in or out, certain or not. It's about what happens in my doubt and my uncertainty. How is God working in my tension? How is God working in this gray area? Will God make miracles out of this situation? Keep it in your phone. Think about it. Pray through it. Believe it. You know what happened when Jesus performed this absurd and foolish and ridiculous miracle? What happened when Jesus did this was that there were people who were standing outside of a door who were shouting, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, and all of a sudden they were welcomed into that door. That was an impossibility. A miracle happened for those people. There were other people who were under the oppression of a Roman Empire, and, uh, and all of a sudden Jesus shows up, and they were like, I thought the only way to be able to fix this was through violence, and now I follow the Savior who tells me to break bed and make sure my needs are met with others. That's a miracle. There are other people who are like, I can only worship this God Caesar, and this Caesar is the only thing I have to worship, and this is all I can see in my life. And this Jesus shows up and performs a miracle, and people are like, there's a movement that's starting. There's something else. This is a miracle. And people were thanking God because God was doing all that they could even see and beyond all that they could ever ask or imagine. And what will God do for us? What miracles is God performing for us? What will we do where we can say, God... To you, who does more than we could ever ask or imagine. To you, God, be all the glory and the honor and the praise forever and ever. Amen. Amen? God, um, we doubt you. We struggle with you. And we ask that you would work in the midst of our doubts and in the midst of our struggles to do these little miracles in our life where we can point back and say, that was you. Show that to us and show that to others. Lord, when we doubt, help us not to think that, okay, well, it's over, we're doubting. Help us to think, good, this is just the beginning. We pray this in your name, amen.